0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, it is good to be in your house tonight. Lord, I'm thankful for the good week that you've given us, the safety that you've provided us, and the fact that we're able uh, to have the freedom to assemble tonight. God, I pray that you would bless the effort to preach your word. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I don't always do this, but I'm going to begin the service tonight by asking a favor of you, and I know that I don't have to do this for everyone. So this would only be for a small segment of you here tonight that might need this. But I would really ask us to to determine that we're going to pay attention tonight and not allow ourselves to be distracted. I know that there are distractions of the mind that could take us away from really listening. I know that if we're not careful, we could get fidgety and not really pay attention, maybe to the extent that we ought. But I I think tonight's message, not that one would be more important than another, but I do think tonight's message is very important, and I think it's one that can be a help to us. And so I would ask us to not only listen, but to be willing to do some self-evaluation at the close of the service, Uh, to ask the Lord if there's anything in this that we need personally from this message. And so with that being said, tonight, if you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're going to be this evening. We are skipping a lot of scripture from where we were last week to where we're at tonight. There's a reason for that, and the reason is this, is much of 11 and 12 is spent on Paul's effort to defend his integrity and to reestablish his apostolic authority. And we're hopefully going to come back to that at another time, but this evening we're going to kind of skip over all of that, and we're just going to deal with a few verses in the closing words of what we call chapter 12. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're at tonight, and I want to begin the sermon by saying this. I know I've said this in the past, But I know that some of you are not sports fans at all. You don't care about sports of any sort. You don't care about them of any nature. If every sporting event ceased today and there was never another sporting event, you would be just fine. I get that. However, there is much to be learned by way of application from the life or from the arena of sports. We would agree with that, I think. I think there's a reason why Paul used sporting illustrations from time to time, because they convey thoughts and they convey truths that can be applied in a person's daily life. And so tonight I want to begin by asking you to think about a couple of teams and whatever sport you'd like to think about tonight. I don't care the sport, I just want you to think about a couple of teams, As both teams have made their way to the season, this is the point that they now find themselves in, playing for the championship game, what will be the final game of the season. At the conclusion of that game, there will be a winner and there will be a loser. There will be no participation trophies handed out, There is going to be a winner, and there is going to be a loser. Now, for those of us who have watched moments like this unfold, here is what we know. That whenever the team has won, whenever the team has been victorious in that championship game, they are thrilled, they are excited, they are elated, There is great joy, there's laughing, there's high fives. There there are all these manifestations of great joy. At the same time, here's what we know. Whenever the cameras focus on the losers, here's what you see. The exact opposite by way of expression and emotion. There are no smiles, there is no laughter, there are no high fives, there are not all these expressions of great joy. No, sometimes even with grown adults playing their sport, here is what you will see. You will see them crying because of the letdown. You will see them just sitting on the bench maybe, just staring off into the space with kind of a blank space. Here, or a blank look in their eye, here is what has happened. They have been crushed both mentally and emotionally. Their mindset is different and their emotions are different because they lost that game that was so important to them. And if somebody were to go to them and say something like this, well, at least you got to play in the big game, you know what? That would serve as no consolation to them. They didn't show up just to play in the game, they showed up to win. And if you were to go up to them and say to them, well, at least you gave it your best. And, and if you gave it your best and you don't have to have any regrets and, and you can leave with your head held high, that might be true. But you know what is also true? It doesn't take away the pain of the loss. Again, the athlete wants to win And anything less than that in that moment is crushing both mentally and emotionally. Now, as you think about that, I know that you know this, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it and then we're going to move on. That principle is true in so many areas of life, is it not? There are areas of life where people want to succeed and people want to do well. And if they don't succeed and don't do well, it's going to crush them and it will alter the way that they think and their emotions. I mean, take, for instance, someone who has a desire to run their own business. If their business fails and if their business flops, it's no consolation to them to say something like this. Well, at least you tried. Because they didn't go into business for themselves hoping to fail. You take somebody who wants to accomplish a project and the project just fails miserably at work and, and it reflects on them very poorly. You don't walk up to them and say, Well, you gave it your best. You can hold your head up high. That doesn't take away the sting of it. What do people in life want to do? They want to win. They want to succeed. They want to be victorious in what it is they engage in. Now this evening as we think about that, tonight we know who the human author is of this letter to the believers of Corinth. We know that Paul is the writer, correct? We understand that, we know that, we're aware of that, and tonight I want us to think about this truth that as much as we respect the Apostle Paul, as much as we revere him, as much as we hold him in a high regard, here is what we know is that he was as human as any of us are. He was made of the same sinful flesh as you and I. And so Paul did not reach this stage in his spiritual life where he didn't struggle with feelings, where he didn't struggle with emotions, where he didn't struggle with his attitude at times. No, the Apostle Paul would have been just like you and I. And you know what the Apostle Paul wanted to do in his ministry? He wanted to succeed, he wanted to be victorious in his endeavors. He didn't want to just participate. He wanted things to go well, and he wanted there to be some visible fruit for all the effort that he expended in the lives of individuals. And something you read, and we're just going to touch on this very quickly and then continue on in our text tonight, but something you read in chapter 11 is this, is that Paul mentions The care of all the churches that he carried. The Apostle Paul carried a burden upon his shoulders for the churches he had started, the lives that he had influenced, and the people that he had won to Christ. So, as you think about that, look if you would tonight in verse number 19, again of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 19. Notice in the last part of the verse what Paul said. He said, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. He said, we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. What does it mean whenever the Apostle Paul speaks of edifying? It means this, to build people up. To build people up in their spiritual lives. So what Paul is saying to the believers is this. Everything that we do and everything that we engage in, everything that we participate in, it is for this reason, it is for this purpose that you might be built up in your walk with God. I want us to understand something tonight that the Apostle Paul, from a human standpoint, did not have the ministry he had because he had nothing else to do with his life. The Apostle Paul was a capable man. The Apostle Paul was a qualified man. The Apostle Paul could have done so many things with his life, and yet in an act of obedience to God's will for his life, he went into what we refer to as the ministry. He traveled the countries that he was a part of, and he would try to spread the gospel to lost souls and to unreached regions. And he said, everything that we engage in, is for your betterment spiritually. He says, I'm trying, and we together, collectively, we're trying to be a help to you. So if you think about whenever he says, we do all things for your edifying, again, context shows us that he's already talked about the shipwrecks, being beaten, the nights in the sea, Everything that he had gone through, again, this wasn't for him. This wasn't for the sake of adventure. This wasn't because his life needed some excitement. He said, I am trying to do this or I am doing these things to try to build you up in your spiritual life. So he says in verse number 20, continuing his thoughts, Again, keep in mind, please, that he is writing to people whose minds have been influenced by the false prophets or the false teachers. He says in verse number 20, For I fear. For I fear. What does it mean when Paul says that he was fearful? It means this, that he was afraid of something. He was concerned that something might be the case. So what was he fearful of? He said, Well, I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. What is Paul saying? He's just saying this. Here's my fear and here's my concern. Here is something that's kind of got my attention right now, is that whenever I make my way back to you, I'm not going to find you all in a position that I want to find you in, and you're not going to like the position that you find me in because of the position I found you in. Paul says, I'm fearful that whenever I arrive, things are not going to go well. Again, I'll not like what I see in you, and you're not going to like what you see in me. And so he goes on to say this in verse number 20, Lest there be debates, envyings, wrath, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, You know what Paul was nervous about? Great conflict when he returned to the church of Corinth. Now, Now understand this, not with everyone, but with the segment of the believers there in Corinth. So he's concerned and he is fearful and he is afraid that whenever he arrives... There's going to be conflict. He'll not enjoy what he sees in them. They'll not enjoy what they see from him, if I said that right. Okay, I want to make sure. And then he says in verse number 21, And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, And I shall be well, many which have sinned already. This is something else that Paul was fearful of. Is that when he arrived and saw them again, he said that my God will humble me. What does it mean to humble? It means to bring low or to abase. Let's think about this. It it means to humble, to bring low, to abase. Paul said he's fearful that upon his arrival, he's going to be brought down another notch. I don't think the Apostle Paul was necessarily struggling with pride. I don't think the Apostle Paul was necessarily struggling with arrogance. I mean, after all, his own credibility has been tarnished by the false teachers, and some have already been influenced by what the false teachers have said. So I think the Apostle Paul had a pretty good perspective of who he was and the ministry he had and things of that nature. But it's like Paul realized, if I show up and you all are in the same position you're in as I understand it to be right now, I'm going to be humbled by this. And it's as though I'm going to be crushed, get this, mentally. It would take a toll on the Apostle Paul mentally if he showed up and there were believers who were still messing around with their sin. And he said this, not only would it humble him, he said, but that it would cause him to be well. To be well. What does it mean to be well? It means to mourn or to lament. So what is Paul saying? He's saying this, that he's fearful that whenever, he's arri- whenever he arrives, he'll be broken, he'll be saddened, and he'll be sorrowful. In that moment, you wouldn't be able to say to the Apostle Paul, Hey, Paul, don't worry about it. At least you've reached some that wouldn't be enough. You wouldn't be able to say to the Apostle Paul, hey, you've done your best. Just hold your head up high. It's not going to be a reflection on you, Paul. He would say, no, it is a reflection on me. Because if you remember last week's sermon from chapter 11, he said it was his goal to try to present them pure and faithful to their groom as the bride of Christ. Paul felt like it was a reflection on him. And so he says, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall be well, or I'm going to grieve or lament or mourn. And notice what he said next. He would do so for many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. I think this is so very important that we see this. You know what Paul said would be the source of his humbling and the source of his grief and his lamenting? It would be finding that segment of the church there in Corinth. Corinth. After all that he had invested in them, for them to still be unrepentant. Living still in the sin that they have been engaged in now for quite some time. Paul said, this is what I'm fearful of. The meeting's not going to go so good. I'll not like what I see in you. You'll not like what you see in me. There could be debate. There could be strife. There could be wrath. There could be all these things. And here's what I'm fearful of. I'm fearful that I'll be crushed both mentally and emotionally because some of you refuse to repent. You refuse to make things right. You refuse to turn from your sin and begin doing what God has called you to do by way of Christian obedience. That'll be a source of lamenting and sorrow and humility. Your lack of repentance. So this evening, as you think about that, I I want us to think about something this evening. I'm sure some of you are aware of this. Others of you may not ever give this a lot of thought. But this evening, I want to begin by making a statement, okay? I think this has always been true, and I think it is true today, that there are people in the ministry who have no business being in the ministry. It's not me being judgmental. It's not me trying to be harsh. It's just me trying to be honest with us this evening. Saying to you that there are some people who identify themselves as ministers, as those in the ministry. And they have no business being in the ministry. And they would do the work of the Lord a favor if they would just get out of the ministry. That's just the reality of it. You say, well, what would cause you to say such a thing? Well, you would need to visit with me after the service for me to give you a somewhat broadened explanation as to why I feel that way. I'm just saying there are some who need to get out of the ministry. But tonight I want us to think about this truth, that while that is true of some number of people in the ministry, that is not true of everyone in the ministry. I want to say this as clearly as I can. It is not just the independent Baptist who have good people serving in the ministry of the Lord. There are good people in different denominations, who are serving in the ministry of the Lord, and I think we need to be reminded of this sometimes, that the only reason they are in that position is because they chose to be obedient to God's call in their life. They did not go into the ministry because they could not do anything else with their life. They did not go into the ministry because they were too lazy to get a real job. I want us to think about this tonight. Of all the good people who serve in the role of ministers across our land, throughout this world, there are many of them who are in that role simply because they're trying to be obedient to what God wants them to do. And though they may not express it like this, here is what I think would be true of the good ones who are out there. What they are doing is in an effort to build people up in their Christian lives. They're trying to be a help to people. They're not trying to hurt them. As they prepare and as they study and as they work and as they invest, as they do all these different things, they're doing it because they want to help people, they want to help them in their spiritual lives. Now, I know what I'm about to say is going to sound self-serving. It's going to sound like I'm trying to help myself. I want you to know this is not just for me. This is for every good minister serving out there in our land. This is true of every one of them, that something that, that church folk need to be reminded of sometimes is this, is there is a burden associated with trying to minister to God's people that lay people simply do not carry. Now, I know that that could sound arrogant. Some people could say, well, if you only had my job for a little bit, I'm telling you, I'd be happy to trade jobs with you for X amount of time and and see where we're at at the end of it. I'm just saying there is a burden that goes along with trying to minister to the churches. The Apostle Paul said that not in arrogance, but but just in a statement of fact that there is a burden that goes with this. Well, well, for what reason? What is the burden that that the pastor would carry that, that you suggest nobody else could understand? Okay, let's keep this in mind that a good minister, guess what he deals with on a regular basis? He deals with everything that everybody else deals with in their personal lives. They have family issues, just like the families in the church. They have financial issues, just like the families in the church. They have health concerns, just like the families in the church. They have all of that by which to identify with, but in addition to that, You know what else they get to do? They get to help carry the burdens of the other people in the church in a way that the average church family does not have to carry. It's the pastor. Let's listen. It's the pastor who gets called in in the midst of someone's sickness with the expectation that you'll be there to be with them, to pray with them and to show that concern and 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 to just be there. It's the pastor who gets called in the unlikely event of a tragedy and you're supposed to be there with all the right words and with with all the right thoughts and with all the right expressions and when someone passes away it's on the shoulder of the pastor or the minister to to be there and to give all the comfort and to say everything that needs to be said and I just want to remind you tonight and I know some of you know this but but sometimes that is a burden that you just can't understand until you've carried that burden And that you've carried it consistently. But I want to make this clear that for every good minister that I've met, for every good minister that I have been able to rub shoulders with, here's what I could say of every one of them. They don't mind that at all. If they can be a help, they want to be a help. If they can be an encouragement, they want to be an encouragement. If they can be a source of strength, they want to be that source of strength. Here is what they know, and here is what they understand. Here is what they grasp from the early days of their ministry. That's kind of part of the job, and that's kind of something that goes with the territory. You'll get the phone calls you don't want to get. You'll you'll get those expectations put on you that, that sometimes are a little unrealistic. That just goes with the territory, but they can handle that. But can I tell you what crushes the good ministers? Can I tell you what drains the ministers, both mentally and emotionally, more than anything else? It's whenever they're investing in the lives of individuals and they don't see repentance take place and lives changed on a regular basis. I want you to know something tonight. And again, this is not meant to be self-serving. This is just meant to be an effort to explain some things to us. Because this is not just my testimony. This would be my testimony plus the testimony of so many men that I've talked to. You know what hurts a pastor more than anything? Is seeing a family that they have been working with for years. In the same position they were in when they first started working with them, however many years ago that it was. When you're, when you're working with them saying, you need to do this, and you ought to do this, and, and you ought to consider this, and, and you need to take care of this, and they sit there and they say, yes, sir, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah, we need to work on that, but nothing ever changes. Can I just let you in on this if you haven't really thought about it? That kind of stuff kills a pastor. Because it's not enough to the pastor to hear something like this. Hey, you preached and you did everything you could. That's not a reflection on you. That's a reflection on them. It may be true, but guess what? It still drains the minister. Like it or not, it does. This kind of stuff drains the ministers who are worthy to be in the ministry. when people are playing games and they have no interest of ever getting serious week after week after week after week after month after month after year after year and you're saying where is the growth It just weighs on a good minister. I'm not saying this of myself. I'm saying talk to preachers and ask them what burdens them and what weighs on them and what causes them to mourn and to grieve as much as anything else. What keeps their feet firmly grounded on this planet? It's a lack of repentance on the part of people who are just playing games and not taking their spiritual life serious. Talk to the minister. Talk to the minister who has people mad at him because he had to take a stand that he knew wasn't popular. And see what kind of a weight and a burden that that puts on the pastor. And in the church, you've got this section of people, and you've got this faction of people, and you've got this group of people, and they're mad at the preacher because the preacher took a stand that they didn't appreciate. Heaven forbid they get their heart right and actually take a biblical view. They're just going to hold on to that resentment toward the pastor, and the pastor has to carry that. But it's not supposed to bother the pastor. I'm just telling you, that's not real life, it weighs on the pastor. When the pastor has to deal with dumb issues that mature Christians ought to be past, it really does make the pastor want to scream, throw their hands up in the air and say, what in the world is going on? They're fussing about that. They're upset about that. This church member is upset at that church member because of that. Good grief. And you try to talk to the church member, and they're not going to resolve anything with that church member. Nope, they're not going to say anything. No, they're not going to do anything. But pastor, would you go talk to them? Uh, No. However, it's not supposed to bother the pastor. You know what Paul would say? It's not true to life. It doesn't matter how many may be doing right. It, it, it's kind of like everything else in life. What gets our attention is what is wrong, and, and it can be crushing, and it can be demoralizing, and it can be, it can be difficult to endure. Again, if you don't believe it, just talk to pastors. When a pastor knows he doesn't have the heart of a church member, Because the church member doesn't trust them. It weighs on the pastor. When it's just one thing after another, after another, after another. It begins to crush the minister, the pastor, the preacher, whatever you'd like to call the person. It begins to crush them. Mentally and emotionally. They grieve. They mourn. They lament. They're limited as to what they can do. But it's a burden. All a good pastor wants to see is some repentance from time to time. Some change in how people are living from time to time. They just want to see some movement. They just want to see some progress. But it doesn't always happen. And it's hard. Somebody says again, Brother Kyle, are you preaching this for you? No, I'm not preaching this for me. I'm just trying to show us what Paul wrote as he's wrapping up his thoughts to these believers who have been influenced by the false teachers. He is saying, my fear is this, is that I am going to be humbled and that I am going to be grieved. Why? Because you're not repenting and turning from the sin that you've been engaged in. And tonight, all I am offering to you, except a little bit of insight maybe on what it's like from this side of the pulpit, all I'm trying to present to you tonight is this question. Is if you had to be honest before God tonight, would you be able to say this? Would you be able to say, I am as repentant as I ought to be on a regular basis? Whenever the word of God is declared, I'm quick to say to myself, Lord, is there something in that that I need? And if he says yes, are you willing to address it and make the changes that need to be changed? I'm just asking you to consider, not just for my sake, but for your sake, are you as repentant as you ought to be? Because it is so easy I know this. It is so easy to come to church, sit through another message, and leave without really considering what was in that for me. I'm, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm torn in this area. Okay, I am torn because I'm not looking for a bunch of empty public responses. We can come to the altar every time an invitation is given, but if we don't change, what difference does it make? But at the same time, I cannot help but question, how is it that for months we never see the need to bend our knee before God? How is it that we can sit through service after service after service after service And we didn't need to respond to that one. Again, I'm not looking for public displays of repentance just for the sake of a public display. But I am saying this. Shouldn't there be some visible signs of, hey, I want to address that. I want to deal with that. I I need to deal with that right now before we leave. I'm just saying there is a need, not in our church alone, but all across this nation. There's a need for some repentance changing our mind, and thus changing our actions. And I'm just telling you, if this caught on in churches across America, you'd see pastors with a whole new level of energy like they have never had before. Not since they got out of Bible college, at least. Because you almost get to the point where you don't expect anything. And it becomes a drag. And it becomes a burden. I'm just asking, are we as repentant as we ought to be? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. Lord, I pray that this message would be received in the manner in which it was intended to be delivered. God, I pray that you would help us to take a moment and ask ourselves to what extent we really are repentant. Lord, not only do we need it for ourselves, we need it to be an encouragement to someone else. To be a help, to be a blessing to someone else. God, I pray that you just help us to be honest before you and we would respond however we need to. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.